All right, Jesse, I'm still up in arms about last week's callous murderer. What's the story this week? When a man dies at home with no evidence of foul play and no discernible cause, the coroner labels it a medical mystery. But the man's grieving widow insists that her husband may have met a murderous end. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about secret plots, suspicious suspects, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Thanks again from the bottoms of our blackened hearts for all your beautiful reviews this week. They were so appreciated. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are so glad, as always, to welcome and shout out a new set of awesome patrons. Emily R. and Nicole B. Jennifer P. and Karen K. And Sharon B. and Kristen M. All right, Andy. Today we have a very twisty attorney case recommended by Nicole H. on the Facebook discussion group. Thanks so much, Nicole. And hi, I hope you enjoy the case you recommended today. There's just so much going on in this case that I think we should really just jump right in. In the wee early hours of September 9th, 2000, police were dispatched to a well-kept ranch house in an upscale neighborhood of Montebello, California, a suburb of Los Angeles. At just around three in the morning, a woman had called 911 in hysterics, saying that her husband had collapsed, she had found him on the ground, and she believed that he may be dead. When they arrived, the woman, 33-year-old Angelina, or Angie Rodriguez, was puffy-faced from crying and clutching her preteen daughter. Officer Stephen Sharp was led to the bedroom where they found 41-year-old Frank Rodriguez lying face down on the floor. Officer Sharp knew immediately that the man was deceased. Frank was not breathing and he was cold to the touch. There was blood leaking from his nose and it was soaking into the shag carpet below. They could also see a small pool of blood underneath his body as well. There was absolutely no sign of foul play. Frank's body was completely untouched. It was the blood that had come from his nose had also rubbed, I believe, on the spot on the carpet like he had been crawling because there was no sign that or like puncture moves. He was not stabbed. He was not harmed in any way. His body was completely untouched and there was no sign of violence in the house. The house was neat, put together. There was no signs of a struggle. A paramedic arrived and confirmed that Frank Rodriguez had passed away seemingly from natural causes and there was no need for a homicide investigation. What ensued was a medical mystery. Angie told the police through sobs that Frank, her husband of only five months, had returned from chaperoning a last minute field trip to 
a boot camp slash school for wayward kids that he had previously worked at. So he had previously been a full time teacher slash sergeant at this boot camp school facility. And he had gone back just to do a substitute chaperoning type position. So he came back on Tuesday night from that. On Wednesday, he woke up feeling a little tired, a little groggy, and he went to his job as a teacher, but he felt very ill and had to come home early. That evening, he began throwing up. And by Thursday, Angie realized that something was very, very wrong with her husband. She brought him to the emergency room at a nearby Kaiser Hospital, where they determined that Frank had contracted severe food poisoning. He was told to rest and drink plenty of water and Gatorade to rehydrate his body. So Angie reported that they bought several bottles of Gatorade on the way home so that he could replenish his electrolytes. And she made soup for dinner. And then the family prayed together. This prayer was a regular matter, of course, at the Rodriguez's table because they took their Christian values very seriously. It had been a very common ground that had attracted both Angie and Frank to each other was how serious they took their Christianity. And so this was something that was a routine thing. It wasn't as if they were praying for for his, him. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, thinking that something bad was going to happen. They still thought he just had food poisoning. Frank had soup, tea and Gatorade, but he only seemed to feel worse as the night went on. So he went to bed early and Angie ended up falling asleep on the couch while watching an episode of Law and Order SVU. She woke at three in the morning to go to bed, and it was at that point that she found Frank on the floor, unresponsive and cold to the touch. At the autopsy, the medical examiner found no evidence of trauma, accidental or otherwise. So he didn't fall. It was clear no one had hurt him in any way. There was no signs of strangulation or suffocation. His tox screens were clear, which made sense if we're talking about recreational type drugs because Frank didn't drink, smoke, or do drugs. But there was also no signs of a mysterious infection or of poisons. They did run a poison panel, just the basic stuff, and none of that came up. When the police canvassed the house, they did find some ant poison in the closet. And so they ran additional tests for various insecticides and pest poisons, but that also returned nothing. The book I use today is by Burl Bearer and Frank Girado Jr. It's called A Taste for Murder. And I also watched the Companion Investigation Discovery TV special, which was very enlightening. Uh, I will talk about it at certain portions of this podcast today. <laughs> So Bearer and Girado wrote in the book, A Taste for Murder, there was no known reason for Frank Rodriguez to suddenly die. The man was 100% healthy, except for the fact that he was also 100% dead. <laughs> it's a befuddling mystery. They just do not know what killed this guy. Without further information, the coroner determined that, yes, the death had been one of natural causes. They did not believe that there was any foul play at hand at all. However, they could not determine what the actual one of those natural causes truly was. And as a result, had to leave the cause of death undetermined, which means that the coroner could not issue a death certificate. Yeah, that's so complicated. It's pretty complicated because they can't issue a death certificate without saying on the death certificate what it was that killed this person. 
at this point they're like, well, we don't we don't really know because people don't just drop dead, healthy, otherwise completely healthy individuals. Like Frank was in good shape. He took care of himself. This made zero sense. Well, Angie knew that her husband hadn't just died randomly. Well, the investigators had no reason to believe that there was any foul play, Angie wasn't so convinced. Her woman's intuition was screaming at her that someone had had it out for Frank and clearly they had done something about it. And she thought that she knew exactly who it might be. Angie explained to the police that Frank had suspected a coworker of molesting students at Angelgate, the school slash boot camp where the couple had met. He had apparently brought the issue up to leadership and eventually left the school as Angie did. The coworker, however, remained. When Angelgate asked Frank to fill in last minute for somebody who had dropped out of a field trip, he agreed, though Angie very much asked him not to do this. She said, everybody knows that you turn this guy in. That guy is still there. He has it out for you. This is going to be uncomfortable at the best and potentially dangerous at the worst. So she didn't want him to go altogether, but he really wanted to. He liked a lot of his colleagues there other than this guy, she said. But now, with Frank being dead, she was a little concerned that the man had given Frank something to eat or drink or done something that had ultimately made him sick because he got sick pretty soon after coming home. The investigators were still not entirely convinced that they were looking at a homicide, but Angie's passionate pleas caused them to open an investigation And what they would eventually uncover was a sordid tale of greed, fraud, perversity, and yes, homicide. First, the detectives had to get to know Frank to find out who his enemies were and who might want this upstanding gentleman dead. So I think we should get to know Frank as well. I think so too. Frank was born Jose Francisco Rodriguez, the second son of six siblings in El Paso, Texas in February of 1959. Frank's father, Paco, had been a doctor in his native Mexico and had crossed the border to seek out more opportunity in the United States. Though he was never able to pass his board exams in the United States, he did find work as an orderly in a hospital where he met and then subsequently married Frank's mother, who already had one daughter from a previous relationship. Frank was the firstborn of the five children that they had together, and his siblings all said that he was the undisputed leader of the pack. The family moved around a lot for Paco's various work opportunities. He did end up working kind of as a doctor in some different organizations and as a teacher. So they lived in Chicago. They lived in Maine. But Paco was never really a settled family man. Even though he had had all of those children, he never was a very comfortable father and he never felt good about being tied down. One of his friends said that all he wanted to do was drink and fuck and chase tail. (laughs) Yeah. So he was not father of the year. And when all of the kids were still in school, he completely abandoned the family and moved to Florida without them. Whoa. Leaving Frank's mother with six children to raise. And she did, by all accounts, an incredible job. All of the kids were fairly well-adjusted, happy, thriving, and ended up becoming responsible adults. Frank was known as a big-hearted, peacemaking, class clown type. He was also a jock playing football and wrestling. He joined the Navy after high school, but he did return after, I believe, boot camp to marry his high school sweetheart. 
They were married for several years, during which Frank was often deployed and the distance took a toll on the marriage. Frank was stationed in San Diego when he re-upped his contract with the Navy, and he absolutely fell in love with California. Well, unfortunately, his wife fell out of love with him. The collapse of his marriage really devastated Frank. His sister said that his one desire had been to have a family. So this divorce was a very bitter pill to swallow. He was getting a little older. He had really had high hopes for that marriage. I think he really did love his wife. He was described as pretty lost in this period. He eventually left the Navy. He dabbled with a few different careers that never really stuck. He studied to be a paralegal for an immigration attorney, but that didn't work out. And then he was a plumber's assistant for a little while, but he didn't really want that to be his calling. And then he joined the National Guard. A National Guard buddy told him about an open position at a police-run boot camp slash school for troubled kids called Angel's Gate. From what I gathered, this is the type of school that Paris Hilton talks about going to, where it's kind of like a boarding school slash boot camp. This one sounded like it was less for the Paris Hiltons of the world. It's not for rich kids who are misbehaving. It's for kids that have already gotten into significant trouble in their life. I don't even... Did Paris Hilton talk about one that she went to? Yes. She had a documentary about that people didn't know that she went through a very traumatic experience of being abused at a camp that her parents sent her to to straighten her out. Okay. And there's a lot of stuff in this. There's well documented that these types of places existed and they were rife for abuse. Of course. I mean, it sounds like it. It's if they're troubled teens... Yes, and they would do things like discipline them by denying them food, making them sleep in the cold, making them shower in freezing cold water. Yeah, things that the instructors think is going to, like, teach them how hard life can be, but it's actually abuse. <laughs> yes, and, like, like the whole breaking children yeah. down thing, stripping them naked, things that were, this like, isn't also— isn't the army, though. Come on. Yeah. Exactly. So this place did not do that as far as I could see. I looked up cases of abuse in these types of environments and there were many documented cases, but not at Angel's Gate, at least not during Frank's tenure there. So this was one place that seemed more on the up and up. And this place, he had a military background. So this kind of was a perfect fit for him. And it gave him a love of teaching, which inspired him to go back and get his teaching certificate and eventually teach outside of this environment as well. And Angel's Gate was great for him. It gave him the career path that he had always been looking for and wanting to find. And it really helped him clean up his act. Like I said, he went back to school. He also stopped drinking, which apparently was getting a little out of control. His father had substance abuse issues, which probably helped cause him to abandon his family. And so his sisters had been a little concerned about his drinking because they were worried about him following in their father's footsteps. But he completely stopped drinking. He rededicated himself to Christianity. And he became a really, really great teacher. At Angel's Gate, colleagues and the kids who were there all loved him. He was just the one person that was universally beloved at this place. One colleague who especially liked Frank was a 33-year-old single mother named Angelina. Angie was fond of carrying around a Bible and reading Bible passages and working passages and in prayer into personal exchanges, which wouldn't be my cup of tea, but apparently this was very attractive to Frank because he was so serious about his Christianity 
that having this woman who walked the walk and talked the talk and was also just in general very attractive. Yeah. It seemed like it was the perfect woman. He also loved that she had a daughter because he was now in his early 40s and he had always wanted a family. They were going to potentially try for another one, but he already had a daughter coming in that he was going to adopt. So it just seemed like a match made in heaven. Frank was completely besotted with Angie and decided to marry her fairly quickly after dating. I'm sure the engagement was hastened by the fact that they had decided to remain celibate until after the wedding. Oh. So yeah, it's like, you guys aren't fooling anyone. I know you had sex before. She's got a kid. You were married. So, but they were both had kind of wavered for many years and now were recommitting themselves to their Christianity. And in that respect, they wanted to have a completely above bar courtship and marriage. So funny what people consider above bar for their situations. Yeah. The feedback I got was that they wanted to do everything right because they had both been married before. And this time they wanted to try to do everything as correctly as possible in the Lord's eyes. But also that makes for a short engagement and a short courtship if you are waiting until there's a ring on your finger to get it in. Yeah. In April of 2000, the couple wed in a religious ceremony and Frank adopted Angie's daughter, Autumn. His sister said that he was in love with Angie and he was so excited to be a father for Autumn and he had finally achieved the family he'd always yearned for. Frank believed that due to their mutual faith and their very in-line ideas for the future, that his second marriage would be different than his first. Meanwhile, it seems likely that Angelina also had different hopes for her fourth marriage. Oh. Yeah. So let's take a closer look at Angie and determine whether she is valiantly fighting to avenge her murdered husband or something else entirely. Angelina Koliakovo was born in 1968 to Italian-American parents in far Rockaway, Queens, New York. She lived in low-income housing projects with her nurse mother, Anita, and older sister, Gigi. Her father was an alcoholic who was only sporadically employed as a taxi driver and for the most part, pretty much out of the picture. Now, we're going to get into Angie's childhood, and I got to give you a mess of trigger warnings, guys. Suicidal ideation, child sex abuse, and unfortunately, incest. Oh, no. Yeah. It's never a good sign when I have to trigger warning somebody's backstory. Yep. Angie was a cute kid with curly brown hair and big brown eyes and was described as spunky, independent, and rebellious. Her mother told a story where Angie ran away at the age of nine, but was eventually found at a home for girls and returned. She also began engaging with sex and drugs and alcohol at a very early age. She reportedly attempted to commit suicide more than once in her childhood and adolescence. The first attempt happening when she was only eight years old. Oh, my God. She consumed a pile of over-the-counter painkillers, but survived. Obviously, the thought of an eight-year-old driven to suicide is deeply upsetting, as is the probable motivation. Angie's grandfather was a disgusting excuse for a human being who allegedly molested all of his granddaughters. Those were the ones that came forward and said that it had also happened to them. Who knows? It could have been the grandsons as well. 
and he had a like a routine. It's it's really gross. So they get into details that I don't feel comfortable talking about about the molestation. I don't think it serves anyone. In a taste for murder, which by the way is on Kindle Unlimited, so it is free if you have a Kindle to download. So if you guys are curious about more of the details that I couldn't fit in today, please download it and check it out because they do talk extensively about this portion. He had a whole like gross routine down and he had done this to all of the cousins. But usually after a year or so, he would move on and he would move on to a new victim. However, there was something different about Angelina and he ended up abusing her for years and years and years from being a very small child way into her teen years. The book, again, goes into great detail about what happened to Angelina, but suffice to say that he raped her orally, vaginally, and anally. It was... my God, It was just the depths of depravity. Angie initially realized that the sex acts were wrong, Even as a child, she realized that this was not the way that a grandfather was supposed to behave with a grandchild. And she tried to alert a few different family members. The first person she told was her grandmother, the wife of the abuser, who did seem compassionate and upset about the accusations. But the woman died less than a week after Angie told her what happened. Whoa. Yeah, it gets crazier. She then told an uncle and he was pissed off and he promised to put an end to the abuse. But then he also passed away just over a week after her admission. What? So she's a little kid and she's thinking, I told two people and they both died. There is nowhere a connection that the grandfather had offed them that I could find. Obviously, as true crime podcasters, that's where our brain goes. Of course. It seems somehow this was just a very odd coincidence and both deaths were ruled of natural causes. So now she says, okay, I told two people, two people died. I'm cursed and I can't tell anyone else because if I do, they'll die. If I tell my mom, Anita, I'm afraid she's going to die. So I'm not going to tell her. And there was only one other person that she tried to talk to about. And it was an older male cousin. And instead of doing something about it, he began sexually abusing her as well. Oh, Jesse, This is a horrific childhood. Anita had been using the grandfather, which I think was her father, but I'm not entirely clear, to babysit while she was working. And the family eventually moved and they found another babysitter in their new building. But by then, Angie was so screwed up about all of the love, and I use that in quotation marks, and the sex and the affection because it was all tied up in the same confused bundle for her, which is common for children who are sexually abused. The affection and the gifts and the special treatment that pedophiles and predators give their victims can feel a lot like what children crave. They crave love and attention. Also, a lot of these terrible people prey on kids that otherwise don't receive a lot of love, attention, affection, material gifts, because usually they have parents who are either not present or working around the clock to try to provide for them. Yep. So the abuse continued well into Angie's teens with her grandfather doling out money and gifts to Angie in exchange for sex. 
He reportedly paid for Angie to have two abortions when she was in her teens. Oh, my God. This poor girl. It's no wonder that she was confused, suicidal, and prematurely promiscuous. A psychologist, Dr. William Vickery, who later treated Angelina, is quoted in the book saying that Angie was incredibly traumatized by this years-long event, and it caused permanent psychological damage, he said. In Angie's case, the trauma was compounded by the fact that her primary abuser was her grandfather, a person she should have been able to trust. This is a devastative betrayal of your trust, and it can be more damaging psychologically than being molested by a stranger. It may also be more difficult to have family members believe that the abuse occurred. If you've been through these kinds of experiences, lots of these victims are quite mixed up as to what is love and what is sex and who can you trust and who can't you trust, who is a bad person. So it causes a lot of trouble later on in their dating relationships and in their marital relationships. This was certainly the case with Angie. She married briefly at 19, but the marriage was incredibly short and the young couple divorced before their first anniversary. Angie decided she needed a big change in her life and she moved to Florida where she joined the Air Force. There are pictures of her in her Air Force uniform and she is genuinely gorgeous. She looks in these specific photos a lot like Rosaria Dawson, I would say. And also... People routinely thought that she was Latin or Hispanic in some way when she was actually Italian. Yep. She reminded me a little bit, too, of the 1980s supermodel Gia Carangi. Yep. Whom Angelina Jolie portrayed in a miniseries or I think it was a miniseries or a movie. But she's pretty, guys. She's super pretty. It was there that she met husband number two, an upstanding fellow airman who was attractive, athletic and sweet. His name was Tom Fuller. Within three months of dating, Angelina was pregnant and the couple married on June 15th of 1990. So the couple had two baby girls around this time. They had Autumn in 1991 and Alicia, who was born very prematurely with significant health issues in August of 1992. Alicia had apnea and bradycardia, which is a slower than normal heartbeat. As a result, she had to spend several months in the NICU. Oh. Alicia came home with a heart monitor, and though she was delayed slightly, not even crawling until she was over 13 months old, she was a very pretty and sweet baby. Unfortunately, tragedy struck around that same time, around just over 13 months. While Tom was out of town for work, Angie called 911 and reported that her baby wasn't breathing. When paramedics arrived, Angie was outside waving them down and then ushered them to the bedroom where they found 13-month-old Alicia unconscious. CPR was administered, but the paramedic could tell that something was blocking the baby's airway. He was eventually able to dislodge a rubber tip of a pacifier that had been stuck pretty far down the baby's throat. Uh, I had like nightmares about that, but I didn't know it was a real thing. I'm so glad you're telling me this story now. (laughs) After she no longer takes a pacifier. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a normal thing. This does not happen usually, hopefully ever again. So yes, it appeared that they found the shield nearby the crib. And believe that at some point the nipple came out of the pacifier and the baby ended up swallowing it. Jesus. Okay. Or breathing it in, rather. 
Despite the best efforts of the emergency medical personnel, baby Alicia was declared dead. An autopsy showed that she asphyxiated on the rubber tip of the pacifier. It turned out that Gerber had recalled this exact pacifier because they had realized it was possible for the nipple to separate from the shield and clearly create a choking hazard. However, no other babies had died from this. Sadly, only Alicia was the victim of this. Oh, my God. Not only did Angie sue Gerber and win a very hefty settlement, she also received a $50,000 life insurance check because she had, for some reason, insured the little baby. Though, at the time, she was working as a life insurance salesperson at Prudential, so maybe she was just her own best customer. Jesus, come on. Yeah. People were a little bit like, you don't have insurance policies on little babies because they're not working to provide you with an income that will be lost if they die. So fucked. It's a little sus. Yep. Tom and Angie's marriage had already been troubled before Alicia's death. Angie had allegedly gotten hooked on prescription painkillers and something described in the book as homemade peanut butter crank. What? (laughs) Which... I Googled because I was like, well, that sounds delicious. <laughs> of course you and are. it turns out that peanut butter crank is a slang for homemade meth. I figured. How did you get meth from peanut butter crank? Oh, I guess the crank. Yeah. But what does peanut butter have to do with it? I think it's just code because it's something that you have at your house. So they're not cooking it with peanut butter? I don't think so. <laughs> so I Googled it. I think they're it. cooking it with poison. <laughs> yes. So I, I Googled it and found out that that's what it was. But then right below the explanation of the slang term was a delicious recipe for peanut butter crank. And I'm like, what? There's a recipe for it? And it was genuinely a woman who called, I think she meant peanut brittle, peanut butter crank. Stop. Which I, we want to hear from you. Was she like an 80-year-old British woman? No, it was like this, like, I think she was Midwestern even. So we want to hear from you guys. If you call peanut brittle or there's some sort of delicious confectionery treat called peanut butter crank that you made with your grandmother, we want to know. Because apparently if you tell people that you were making peanut butter crank with your grandmother, people are going to think you were cooking meth with your grandmother. Maybe grandma's code for something else too, Jesse. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know what you guys are up to. (laughs) Grandma could mean dealer. (gasps) Oh, so many code words. I mean, they just found uh, how much? 15,000 pounds of cocaine. The cocaine in in the baby wipes. People are doing crazy things. Well, in any case, Angie was on the methy meth and not the peanut brittle. And she also was cheating on Tom left and right, apparently. The tragic death of their second born and Tom's disgust at how Angie had publicized the terrible event ended up driving the final stake in the marriage's vampire chest. They divorced in late 1994 after only four years of marriage. Four years is a long time for some people. It is, but it just feels like that was a lot of stuff to happen in four years. Yes, it definitely was. Angie took custody of Autumn. She dated some real pieces of work after this, like drug dealers, not so great guys. She got a couple of restraining orders. 
She had a couple slip and fall lawsuits. She was real litigious. What do you mean a slip and fall lawsuit? It's the type of thing where you're in a restaurant and you fall and then you sue the restaurant because there was a recently mopped floor, that sort of thing. That happens a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If people do this all the time, anything that they can get their hands on getting a little bit of cash, they're going to go after. So with the windfall that she got from the Gerber settlement, which she got the lion's share of, I think she got 60 or 65 percent of it because she told Tom that she deserved more of it because she was the one who had actually found Alicia dead. And so she was more traumatized. So she got a lot of money from that and she bought herself a really nice house in Paso Robles, which do not at me. It's Paso Robles. <laughs> I know Paso, it should be Paso Robles. It's supposed to be Paso Robles if you do the correct Spanish pronunciation. But the town actually goes by Paso Robles. And if you Google it, they will tell you that. So she loved that area. She made a lot of great friends there. She went to beauty school for a little while. She did some various different types of jobs. She even married for the third time, but the marriage lasted less than a year, allegedly breaking up over a dispute when husband number three did not want to get life insurance. Oh, my God. Hmm. We've heard that one before. Oh, my God. Last week. We just week. heard that last episode. Yes. Yeah. I was writing this and I was like, wow, I did not realize what I was doing when I accidentally put these two together as companions to one another. Murder buddies. Yeah, we've got the Lady Roth over here. Angie went to work at Angel's Gate, where coworkers described her as being on the prowl for husband number four. Speaking of four spouses, too. Colleagues said that she was like a chameleon, becoming whatever the target of her affection liked. It's so crazy. I was like, are these too similar? When I started writing them, I must have just subconsciously categorized them together. So apparently there was this other guy that Angie first really liked, and he was a big cowboy. Like he wore the hat and the Western shirts and the big old belt buckle and the boots, the whole nine yards. So when she started going for him, Burl Bear and Frank Girardot Jr. described her as dressing like Patsy Cline. Stop. Yeah, she was full Western country singer. And when that guy ended up rejecting her in favor of another woman, Angie once again changed her entire persona to go after the deeply Pentecostal Christian Frank Rodriguez. She began dressing like a Sunday school teacher and carrying a Bible everywhere she went. Stop. That's heavy. It was all a ploy. Which, again, this is just like Randy Roth's fourth wife. Sorry, guys. Spoilers if you're going in the other direction because this was last week's. He used her Christianity against her as well. This is somebody using a core tenet of a person's belief system against them as a way to get married to them quickly and to trick them into thinking that they're the type of person that they want to marry. Yep. Frank was completely charmed by Angie. He believed because of her act that she was just as invested in the faith as he was. He also thought that she was gorgeous. Well, she doesn't look exactly like the pictures I sent you where she's young and really, really good looking. 
she's still a beautiful woman. She's a little curvier, but she's got that gorgeous smile. She's just working into middle age at this point. But he thought she was just the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen in his life. And he felt very strongly that God had put Angie and Autumn into his life for a purpose. And no matter how many friends said, this is moving a little too fast. I don't think you know her as well as we know her. She's kind of changed her personality before for guys. He would not be dissuaded. He was convinced that she was the one for him. Now, some five months after their April 2000 wedding, Frank was mysteriously deceased and Angie was having a hell of a time trying to cash in on his $250,000 life insurance policy because unfortunately for old Ange, insurance companies will not pay out without a death certificate. Oh, how does she not know this? She should have working in life insurance, but I think maybe she believed that they were going to determine another cause of death. I think in previous poisoning cases, sometimes people have said it was heart failure or they find out something else that feels like it was a comorbidity that they can blame. The problem for Angie was that Frank was extremely healthy. Yeah. Didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do drugs. He ate very clean. So there was nothing to point to on his body. There was a clean heart, clean lungs. I mean, there was nothing that they could say could have killed him. So they are just left with this question mark. If it was a deeply unhealthy person, they could have cut him open and found any number of things. But his body was a temple. So Angie needed them to figure out what happened. And it was clear that it wasn't going to be some mysterious condition that Frank secretly had. So she decided that she was going to help the police find the killer and throw the suspicion on someone else. Oh, okay. This seems like a very hard game to win, Angelina. So she started calling the detectives daily to see where they were on the case and if there was any developments with the coroner's report. And she was straight up about having life insurance and said, yeah, of course we have life insurance. I have a child. He was the sole breadwinner because she had quit her job. So what am I going to do? How am I going to pay the mortgage? It only makes sense that I would have life insurance. When a natural cause of death that was explained by something other than foul play, failed to materialize because they could not figure out what that potential natural cause would be, she decided to push strenuously for the investigation. And the detectives decided to follow up on Angie's lead. She had pointed the finger at this coworker of Frank's, whom we're going to call Peter. He was pseudonymed in the book and he does not want to be recognized. So we're going to go with the name Peter for him. Okay. And she said to them... He came home. He said that everybody was really friendly to him. In fact, this one coworker had offered him food or drink and kept asking if he was hungry or thirsty and had given him cookies and Gatorade. And she said, I don't know why he was accepting this essentially from this person because this was the same person that he had accused of molesting students. In reality, he had never accused this student of molesting students. And I read on a different article, so I don't know if this is completely factual because I wasn't able to confirm it with several sources, that it may have been actually Angelina who had accused this guy of sexually abusing students and it turned out to be false. Okay. 
So Frank had stood by Angie in her accusations and they had both quit, but the coworker had been completely cleared of all. Innocent, yeah. Yes, evil doing. So it's funny, though, because they do go out and they interview this guy and they interviewed the administration and all of his other colleagues and the kids there. And everybody said the same thing. They said that this guy had never done anything wrong. But the <laughs> detectives did admit that, unfortunately, he had an appearance that lends itself to looking like a child molester. They said oh. <laughs> he was like straight out of central casting for how to catch a predator with Chris Hansen. Oh I, my God. This poor guy. It's not his fault. It's just probably a combination of being like a weird white guy with bad glasses. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't see his picture guys. This is all just, I'm guessing. And I feel really, really, really terrible for this guy. Cause he did nothing wrong. Yeah. So they interview him and he said, Angie has had it out for me, and I think it's because I told Frank not to marry her. Got it. She went on the offensive against him because he didn't like her and he didn't want his friend, Frank, marrying her. Yeah. So she tried to throw some dirt his way, but it didn't land, and then she and Frank left Angel's Gate. He said that if anyone had done anything to Frank, it was most certainly his new wife. And other colleagues agreed with him. It turned out that Angie was not very well liked at Angel's Gate and certainly not the way that Frank had been. Let's be honest, sex is better when everyone is enjoying themselves. That's why Dame Product designed Eva, the first hands-free vibrator for couples. Boost pleasure and connection for all with a little toy that won't get in the way. Use the exclusive code LOVEMURDER today for 15% off site-wide. Sharing pleasure during intimacy not only feels good in your body, but it can increase your emotional connection and decrease your stress levels. So you can take those good feelings with you throughout your day. But in order to get there, even the most sexually motivated couples can benefit from a strategically placed buzz. Enter Dame Products. Dame Products designed its hands-free toy, Eva, specifically for couples. It nestles close to the body and stays put with just a finger so you and your partner can focus on intimacy. Designed to enhance, not distract from pleasure, Eva is your sex life's new best friend. So what are you waiting for? Try adding a toy into the mix and discover new layers of pleasure you can share, plus sex you'll look forward to. Jesse, I was so excited when my Dame order arrived. I got the Eva for couples, but also the air and the oil. Yeah, I ended up going back and getting a couple extra things too after my first order. I love that the company is exploring and innovating around toys and pleasure for us as individuals and for us as couples as well. Power up your pleasure with any of the toys from Dame Products. Go to dameproducts.com slash lovemurder today for 15% off site-wide. That's code LOVEMURDER to take 15% off your first order at dameproducts.com. So the detective spoke to Angie's insurance agent because they knew that she had a policy. And the insurance agent was the one who revealed that they were not able to pay Angelina because of the lack of cause of death. So that, of course, put a light bulb in their head that this is why she's pushing so hard. She wants that money. So fucked up. Uh-huh. She needed a cause of death, and she was the only one who knew how Frank had really been murdered because, of course, she is the one who killed him. Surprise. <laughs> but she needed to pin the blame on someone. She can't just straight up be like, guys, it's poison. I put it there. 
So why not point the finger at a guy that she already hates and unfortunately looks like a Chester the Molester? Furthermore, the insurance agent shared that Angie had called him emotionlessly only four hours after they had removed Frank's body from their house bright and early at 8 a.m. Oh, my God. Angie was insistent that they look into finding out who the killer was, so they decided to oblige her. She just didn't know that they suspected that Angie was the killer. I don't get why there's, like, no chill. No chill. This is, again, echoes of Randy Roth from last week. Yes. That he called the very next morning. But that's that's just, like, shows that their intention is completely ill-willed. They can't even think outside of themselves for a moment to consider that if they are this immediate in their follow-up, that it's going to be a massive red flag to the investigation. Gigantic. We talked about this last week, how there should be a flagging system for the life insurance policy. How soon after the death do they call? How soon after the policy goes into effect have they called to claim it? Major, major red flags. And I think that the two individuals that we're talking about were both narcissistic. They both felt like they could charm anyone. They were both manipulative and have been successful thus far. Exactly. So they believed at that point that they could just go ahead their business, keep on doing it, and they can talk their way out of anything. The detectives in this case, it's a detective named Steinwand and then uh, Holmes, are very interesting. These guys put her through the ringer because they realized early on how hard she was trying to manipulate them. And they decided to use that against her. But first, of course, they had to dig into her past. So they went full bore investigating Angie. They talked to her exes. They looked through her lawsuits. They looked through her other legal motions like restraining orders and divorces. And of course, slip and falls, (laughs) slip and falls. And of course, they had to investigate the death of her daughter, Alicia. They spoke to a first responder on the scene who found it extremely odd that Angie had been on the front lawn waving down the ambulance and had left her child who was dying upstairs alone. They said that they had never seen a case. Can you imagine? Never in a million years. They said, especially a baby, but in every case that they had ever had where there was a child involved, the parent either was still inside the house with the child or they had carried the baby or child down to the front lawn with them so they could immediately put the child in the ambulance. Yeah. She did no such thing, and that struck the first responders and the police as very odd. It was just out of character for a mother to do. But the detectives believed that she needed the police and EMTs to discover the baby in the crib with the broken pacifier to sell the story that she had choked on the pacifier while napping. Tom Fuller, Angie's ex, claimed that weeks before Alicia's death, they had been at a restaurant while on vacation, and a waitress who was helping them had told them that Gerber had recalled that exact specific pacifier that baby Alicia was using in the restaurant. And the waitress was just saying, hey, watch out. You probably shouldn't let her have that. I just saw that they were recalled. Furthermore, he said that he had had no idea that Angie had taken out a life insurance policy on Alicia until they received the $50,000 check. Ugh, disgusting. It's disgusting. Also, this is going to really make your head spin. The policy had gone into effect only hours before Alicia was killed. 
How is that possible? I don't understand how that's possible. Yeah, I think it had gone into effect like midnight the night before. Yeah, I don't. I do not understand. The publicity and the Gerber lawsuit and Angie's behavior in the spotlight further disturbed Tom. He said in A Taste for Murder, The death of little Alicia was a modern American tragedy perfect for TV, especially for Sweeps Week, which is exactly when the local TV station aired in-depth interviews with Tom and Angie about the heartbreaking loss of their infant. Angie was in her element, said Tom. I could see that she enjoyed the attention, but I thought that smiling and laughing during the interviews was inappropriate. Looking back on it now, I realized that Angie was getting off on the concern displayed by the reporter. She seemed to have a little smile on her face every once in a while, and she just seemed to enjoy the attention. Yeah, that's disgusting. Yeah, so gross. So now you can see why they ended up divorcing. Yeah. (laughs) Moving on, they spoke to Angie's friends, and if these are Angie's friends, then... I don't want to meet her enemies because they didn't have much nice to say about her. Uh, Uh, One woman who met and befriended Angie in 1997, three years before Frank's death, said, My husband and I went on a cruise with Angie. I didn't dare leave my husband alone with her for five minutes for fear she'd be having sex with him by minute number six. Stop it. Oh, that's not a good friendship, honey. (laughs) Oh, my God. Despite our friendship, I never really trusted her completely. She was very impulsive. When she found out my son was single, she invited herself to his Washington, D.C. home for Thanksgiving. Going for the husband and the son. Crazy. Wowza. Well, that's not a flattering comment, but it's not super relevant to the investigation. What Angie's best friend, Paul Mira, would say, though, would help break the case wide open. Palmyra had liked Frank for Angie, feeling like he was a good example and a great stand-up guy, but it did not seem that the blushing bride had agreed. The investigators had asked her, Palmyra, if they knew anyone who had it out for Frank or said anything bad about him, and she said, only Angie. Oh my God, that's such a bad look. (laughs) Such a bad look. She said that Angie really actually wasn't a fan of remaining celibate until marriage, and she bitched about it all the time, but she did it to look like a good Christian for Frank. And she complained about it a lot, but then by the time they got married, she didn't want to give him sex anymore. And this was because of a couple of reasons. Number one, she found that after they were married that Frank was too controlling. She didn't like the way he was trying to discipline her daughter, Autumn, She felt like he was too strict. And then the lack of sex might have had also something to do with the fact that she had already found somebody else to fill that need. Angie had struck up a relationship, and I think that they might have had a little thing before, but uh, she had restarted a red-hot affair with Palmyra's ex-con nephew, who was recently sprung from a six-month stint in jail. Angie didn't even try to hide this affair from anyone except for Frank, of course. He didn't know about it. But she was very open in front of Palmyra and Palmyra's family members with her nephew. One day, while Angie was once again bitching about Frank, Palmyra asked her why she didn't just get a divorce. Just get a divorce. Palmyra also goes by Mira, so I I might use those interchangeably. 
After all, Angie had divorced three other men without batting an eye. And Angie said, no, this one has life insurance. I need to get a little something out of it. Okay. She also reportedly said at another time, I should just kill him and get it over with. She's not being discreet at all. Not even a little. Palmyra's mother was in the house and overheard this conversation and started telling the young women about a TV show she had watched where a woman had used white oleander, which is all over California. Yep. And used it in a poisonous tea and nearly killed her husband. However, the woman had gotten caught and gone to jail. For some reason, Angie decided to take this story as a source of inspiration rather than a cautionary tale. Palmyra said it was possible that Angie had gotten the idea to poison Frank with oleander from this conversation, but they had also discussed antifreeze poisoning. After a neighborhood dog bit Palmyra's son, her boyfriend, who is the child's father, jokingly suggested soaking a couple hot dogs in antifreeze and throwing them over the fence. So fucked up. So fucked up. Angie was intrigued. She hadn't heard about antifreeze poisoning before. And Palmyra's boyfriend explained that antifreeze had a colorful appearance and a sweet taste. So it was appealing to pets and children who could die if they accidentally ingested it, which happens occasionally. The cops also spoke to Palmyra's nephew, Angie's latest maelstress. And he admitted more than once that Angie had jokingly suggested that maybe he could off Frank for her. He said, I told Angie that I didn't mind screwing her once in a while, but I wanted no part in killing anyone. Real prince over here. He's got his values. (laughs) No way in hell. The more I thought about it, this is still him. The more I thought Angie was one of two things, someone making rude jokes or a serious stone cold killer. I mean, I thought it was like a running gag because murdering Frank was a frequent topic of conversation. (laughs) He then shared with the investigators a chilling conversation he had had with Angie. I never said anything about this before, he confided, but Angie told me that she had loosened gas lines around the dryer and water heater back in Montebello in hopes that Frank would either suffocate from the toxic fumes or that the house would blow up. Oh, this girl is lit. She's not well. So this plan did not work. Bearer and Girardot explained in the following passage that her plan was completely botched. Frank had actually smelled the lake and he had called Southern California Gas Company. Technician Luis Aguilar got the call. He was dispatched to Frank's residence. Almost as soon as he arrived, he got a whiff of rotten eggs. Now, this is interesting. I found this out from this book. I did not know this, that gas does not actually have a natural sulfuric scent. They add it so that you know that gas is leaking. I don't know how I've lived 38 years and I had not, I didn't know that until now. So yeah, he said, the smell comes from an additive added to natural gas and propane. Without it, the toxic and highly explosive gases would be odorless as well as colorless. So as a warning of potential problems, it's added to the gases as a precaution. Bad smells equal bad problems. Yep. So Frank was happy that Luis had isolated what the issue was. And Luis was very concerned for Frank at this point. He said, look, this is a pretty loose connection. And when he tightened the nut on the one on the dryer, he still smelled the gas. So he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's coming from somewhere else. So then he 
found the water heater and saw that it was also extremely loosened as one would have to do on purpose. Worst nightmare shit. This episode has like worst nightmare shit for me happening everywhere. It's really, (laughs) it's really bad. It is. It's, it's true. It was obvious that something wasn't right, Luis would later recall. The hose was really loose. Frank didn't seem concerned that it couldn't have happened on its own. I even mentioned that you couldn't have both of those things disconnected like that by accident, but it did not seem to register. The detectives interviewed Luis, who told them exactly that. It was nearly impossible that the gas leak had been an accident. So they have a lot of circumstantial evidence and hearsay against Angie, but nothing concrete. So they used Angie's greed, impatience, and hubris against her. She's convinced that the police are totally on her side and fully investigating Frank's coworker, Peter. So they tell her, look, we are trying to work this case. We've got this guy in our sights. (laughs) We're going to deliver a search warrant one of these days, but we need to have more information to get that search warrant. And we also have to put on the search warrant what we're looking for. So you have any ideas about what this guy might have poisoned him with? (laughs) I mean, you're just, you know, you seem to really care. So I just feel like... You're so involved. You're basically part of the detective squad at this point. You're our buddy. So what do you think? What ideas do you have? Let's all, you know, let's get the whiteboard out. Let's do some brainstorming here. What do you think? And she said, I don't know, maybe it's those white flowers. And they're like, what white flowers? She's like, the ones that grow alongside the highway. They're white. Sometimes they're red. You know, those flowers. Maybe it's the flowers. And so they finally... This is like the whole episode is like the smack my head emoji. <laughs> it is. We're not going to have a title for this one. It's just going to have gonna the face palm <laughs> emoji. So that's what she gives them. She gives them the white flower. She eventually says, I think it's called oleander. So they made a note at that point to test Frank's body for oleander poisoning, which is not something you would normally test for. So obviously it hadn't been tested so far. And then they impressed upon Angie that they would need more to obtain the search warrant. So they just say, you let us know if you think of anything else, because we're going to need more concrete evidence to go in there. And we also can't put on the search warrant looking for white flowers. Yeah. A few days later, they stopped by Angie's house to interview her again, but she wasn't home. So they did a little walkabout the house and they found that all of Frank's belongings were bagged up and on the curb like trash. And it had only been about a month after his death. Oh, my God. So sad. It's unbelievable. It's just so callous and also so stupid. It's the same thing as how stupid it is to call for the life insurance right away. People aren't going to notice that you're getting rid of all of his stuff. Your supposedly beloved husband less than a month or so after his death. She did want to go back and buy a house in Paso, as we're going to call it, because I can't bring myself to say Robles or Robles anymore. She did want to buy a house again because that's also where her lover lived. Oh. So she wanted to sell this house as well and get back to where the getting was good. Speaking of those white flowers, however, they also noticed that her neighbor had a oleander tree and its branches were coming down over the fence into Angie's yard. Oh, convenient. Very convenient for making poison tea. Turns out that that must be exactly what Angie did because Frank's body came up positive for oleander poisoning. 
However, the amount of oleander found in his body was enough to make Frank very sick, likely drive him to the ER that time, but not enough to be fatal. That was not, again, what killed Frank. So they know now that Angie is a poisoner, but they still did not know what additional substance she must have poisoned him with. Yep. Luckily for the investigators, Angie, ever helpful to this case, had happened to get a mysterious anonymous phone call that revealed to her that Peter had used antifreeze. What? Yes, Angie called the police and she said, hey guys, I got a mysterious anonymous phone call from a blocked number and I was driving through the valleys because she was back in uh, Paso. So she's back up north and she is driving through the valleys. She's not getting great service, but somewhere between 8.05 p.m. and 8.10 p.m., she gets a phone call on her cell. That's pretty precise. It's a man's voice, but she can't tell them how old the man is or what race he might be, and he didn't have an accent, and she's sorry. The line was really fuzzy. However, one thing was for sure. The guy had said that he had utmost respect for Frank, and he had a lot of fear for Peter, but he had to do the right thing and tell her that Peter had told him that he had poisoned Frank with antifreeze. Oh. Well, case solved. Case closed. Detective Angie Rodriguez, baby. They should hire her. They're like, they're looking for it to fill a position? This is great. So did you get the guy's number so we could talk to him? No, he didn't want to come forward. He's afraid of Peter. Okay. You know we're going to subpoena your phone records to try to get that information. She's like, okay. Which I don't think she really thought this through because they do subpoena her cell phone records and no such phone call came in, obviously. But it was fuzzy, Jesse, so it could have not been picked up by the towers, you know? Maybe it was a ghost. (laughs) How could it not be on the phone records? I know I received a call. I was in the ghostly valley. Yes, they're like, don't fucking lie about things that we can check so easily. Come on. Seriously. uh, Of course, they don't straight up call her a liar because they're still playing the charade with her because they're getting so much out of it. Yep. So they run toxicology tests for antifreeze on Frank. And while they're waiting for the results, Detective Steinwand and Holmes also get the poor accused Peter in on the action. They get him on a three-way line, which is being recorded. And Peter called Angie and asked her why she had suggested that he had poisoned Frank with antifreeze and done all of the other terrible things that she had done to him after he had apparently helped her get the job and helped her with her application and had always been very kind to her. Yep. Angie, of course, was very put off. She didn't know how he got her number. She was defensive. She's very rude. Peter kept appealing to her saying, what the heck is going on? Why would you do this to me? Until she finally says, I can't talk to you. And she hangs up on him. And this conversation was took place over a couple of minutes. Okay. The investigators are listening to that phone call and they're literally like counting on their fingers they're like five four three two waiting for her to call them which she does after 30 seconds and she says i just got a phone call from the killer peter and he threatened my life he told me that i better stop nosing around and talking to the cops or i'm going to be in trouble and that he was going to get away with it anyway They're like, lady. I mean, they're thinking this. They don't say it to her. They're like, really? He threatened you? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And you should come down here right away. (laughs) You should. 
<laughs> we'll get you into custody behind bars. <laughs> we'll get you in custody for your own protection. Yeah. 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 So they have this whole tape and they know obviously that Peter said no such thing. They're just filling this fat file with lies after lies after lies. And she has no idea that she's digging her own grave. They also tell her at some point that it doesn't really make sense, actually, that Peter would be able to have killed Frank because he didn't know he was coming. There was no premeditation involved because he was a last minute addition, substitution rather, that there's no way that Peter could have known that he was coming. So therefore, he couldn't have planned all of this out to kill him. Yeah. And she was like, oh, no, he did. He absolutely knew he was coming. I talked to Frank about this. I knew he knew it. And they're like, well, if we only had any proof that that was the case. And so she fabricated some facts that was like an employee list of who was coming on this trip. And she like crossed out a name and wrote Frank's name in. And it was supposed to be an anonymous source providing the attendance sheet that was given to all the employees that would prove that Peter knew that Frank was coming. But... Mensa candidate Angie over here apparently didn't realize that the address from which you send the facts is printed right at the top of the facts. And she was trying to pretend that this fax was coming from Angelgate when in reality it was sent from a Staples that was two blocks from her house. Oh. <laughs> uh, Burl oh. Bear, the author of this, said on the TV special, Angie as a detective did an excellent job of catching herself. <laughs> Finally, the talk screen came back and Frank had five to seven times the amount of antifreeze needed to kill somebody in his body. The toxicologist said that the fatal doses occurred absolutely within 24 hours of his death and most likely within six to seven hours, which would also mean that Peter was out anyway if he had ever been a suspect because he hadn't been around Frank in the last 24 hours when Frank passed away. The police hypothesized that Angie had begun poisoning Frank's tea with Oleander, possibly for a longer period than even after he came home from Angel's Gate, but she really stepped it up afterwards. It was a flavor that was very easily masked with sweetener. And when that did not kill him and was only making him sick, Angie decided to hit him with large doses of the antifreeze in the Gatorade that was intended to make him feel better. Okay. Which, huge love murder red flag is the green-yellow classic Gatorade. I don't want to see that shit anywhere No one likes house. it. It's no one likes it. It's gross. They should stop and, making it. Yeah, it's basically just begging for antifreeze to be put in it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what they hypothesize happened. The same Gatorade that the doctor had suggested he drink and that Angie admitted they had bought several bottles of that she had specifically told her daughter to stay away from saying those are Frank's Gatorades. You can't touch them. A.K.A. Yeah. Just write draw three X's on it. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. It's so true. Literally. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. So they had enough for an arrest at this point, and Angie still thought the detectives were in her pocket. So I love these guys. I feel like they are just screwing with her now. They tell her, guess what? Today's the day. We're making an arrest in the case. And she's like, Peter's going down. And they're like, yeah, you know, you've been so helpful. Do you want to come along? Do you want to come along and see him get arrested? Oh, my God. They're just 
fucking with, with her. her. Yes. <laughs> she's like, great. They're like, cool. We're going to come pick you up. We're going to stop in. We're going to tell you in your living room, like, what's going on. And then we'll all go over and we'll arrest the killer. So they have body cam footage of this conversation and subsequent arrest on A Taste of Murder, the special. And it is mm, poetry in motion. I mean, Andy, I got to tell you, I felt a presence. I really did. I think it was the karma fairy at work. Sprinkle, 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 sprinkle. The moment they explain how she helped them nab the murderer, but it's not, and they bleep out his name, it's her and her face as she realizes how the tables have turned. They're like, you're going to need to stand up now. She's like, are you arresting me? She cannot believe it. And then she starts crying. And it's the only time any emotion is real because she is so shocked. She had no clue. It's a beautiful moment. It really is. After Angie's arrest on February 7th, 2001, the police conducted a search and they found a couple interesting things. They did not find any antifreeze bottles or anything like that, unfortunately. But they did find a list of all of the things that she was going to pay off and buy with the insurance money. A full-on list of like, we're going to pay this bill, then I'm going to take care of the house, then I'm going to buy myself this. But more importantly, they found something else that pretty much took the detective's breath away. It was a document pertaining to the Gerber lawsuit. Angie's attorney had consulted a plastics and rubber expert from the California Institute of Technology to prove that Gerber was culpable for the tragic accident that took the baby's life. Instead, the expert had concluded that the pacifier failed as a result of external force application. Specifically, the apparent damage is consistent with someone stepping on it or rolling over it with a hard wheel. Bear and Giroudot summed it up that while Tom was out of town, Angie allegedly broke the pacifier on purpose, shoved it down her baby's throat, and then collected on a $50,000 insurance policy before going after Gerber for even more money. I'm completely disgusted. Completely disgusted. And their attorney had this information because this was the expert that they were going to use in the lawsuit. And he basically said, oops, can't use them because they're saying the opposite, that my client is a murderer, potentially. And then they just ended up settling instead of going to court. Wow. Moving forward with the trial, the prosecutor tried to gather as much testimony as possible. Unfortunately, Angie's side piece refused to testify, but Palmira, her boyfriend, and her mother were all willing. Angie was denied bail and was incensed when she discovered that her former best friend of six years intended on testifying for the prosecution. She called Palmira on a three-way line through her cousin and tried to bully her into recanting her statement. Wow. She did. She was very manipulative. They have a recording of this. She's saying, they screwed me over. They're going to screw you. You don't think the cops are against you? You don't think they're going to arrest you for accessory to murder? I didn't think that they were going to come after me, but they did. They're sneaky like that. And the best thing that you can do is just recant your whole statement. Then I'm not in trouble. You're not in trouble. Right now, when you tell them that you and your mother were talking about Oleander or your boyfriend's talking about antifreeze, I'm sorry. Your accessory to murder by giving them that information. Yeah, yeah, she's trying to scare her. She's trying to scare her into recanting. 
And Mira's like, ah, hell no. If you said you wanted to kill your husband and I was like, oh, by the way, there's a good knife store down the road. That's not accessory because I don't think you're going to actually literally kill your husband. Yeah. So she's like, of course, I have nothing to do with this. And I'm going to testify against you because you're a bad person who killed your husband. And baby. And baby. This has nothing to do with me. I think Mira, she didn't say so explicitly, but I think Mira pretty much was done with Angie when she was fooling around with her nephew. And you think? Yeah. <laughs> I think that was the point where she was like, yeah, you're a trash person. Yeah. Yeah. So she's like, I'm going to testify. Bye. Hang up. Angie knew then that Mira was the star witness against her and she was going to stop at nothing to stop that testimony. So she struck up a friendship with a woman in the cell next to hers. And the women talked primarily through a pipe that went between their cells. Okay. This woman was in prison for beating her three-year-old with a shovel. So this is great, great company right here for her. The woman's sentence was coming to a close. And because of the fact that she was going to be out soon, and I believe because this inmate was black... Angie assumed that she would help her by hooking her up with her gangbanger friends to kill Palmyra. Oh, my God. The female inmate who is pseudonymed Florence had absolutely no interest in going through with any hits, but she was kind of interested in what Angie was going to say. So she was playing along with it saying, oh, yeah, I mean, I could take care of that for you. But how do you want it done? How much money are you going to pay me? Because she's just kind of like bored and figuring out what Angie's going to say and figuring out if she's like telling the truth about what she wants or if she's just bullshitting, too. Yep. According to police records used in the book A Taste for Murder, this is what the woman Florence had to say. So she was telling me how her husband died and how she married him. She didn't really love him because she didn't know how to love him and that she had had a hard life with different kind of men. So last night she told me exactly how he died and what she used on her husband. Because she thinks I'm going home soon. She wants antifreeze to be used on this girl and to make it look like the boyfriend did it. That way it would throw it all off. Well, her exact words were, I'm going to tell you what I used to kill my husband. You're going to laugh. You're going to think it's funny. And she told me she used antifreeze. Angie went on to explain that if Florence agreed to murder Palmyra, she'd have to understand that using antifreeze isn't a quick method of killing. We have to give it to her and sit around for hours. So she can't go and call the hospital and get no help, Florence said. She wanted to make it look like a robbery and that the girl had a lot of nice furniture and computers and stuff in her house. And of course, whoever killed Palmyra would be entitled to take her stuff. She wouldn't need it if she were dead. So she knows exactly what's going to happen. Florence continued, she offered me money. First, she offered me 20 grand, but that was to put her in a coma. Then she says, you know, I'm going to give you 25,000 because she thinks I know a lot of little gangbangers and stuff like that. When Florence didn't bite on the offer, Angie upped the ante a second time. I'll give you wow. 30,000, she told Florence. Desperado. Desperado for real. Desperately trying to get Florence's help, Angie made her final offer. She will buy me a house because she's moving up to Arizona by her mother and the insurance money for her husband has accumulated interest. All Florence had to do was kill Palmyra or get somebody else to kill Palmyra and send Angie a note that said, job well done. It would be just that easy. Does she not realize that she's in jail? <laughs> so after a few conversations like this, Florence actually started getting worried that Angie was setting her up because now she's sounding like she's agreeing to this hit. 
So she's like, it's high time that I go to the authorities and tell them everything about what's going on. So the detectives convince Florence to wear a wire and also use a microphone because they're still recording this through the pipe. Okay. And they get all of the following on tape. They have... Angie basically justifying the murder of Palmyra by saying that she'd been reading the Bible and they made it very clear that enemies will and should die, that they're not worth being on the planet. And if it was between her daughter and her enemies, it wasn't close. She said, it's time for me to go home. Angie then gave Palmyra's address and explained how to find the exact house she lived in because there was apparently two houses on this property. She said, this is the door you go in on. They never lock it. The house might be a little messy. She suggested also that maybe it would just be easier if Florence's associates just blew up the house altogether. Maybe make it look like a gas leak. Just blow up the whole house. Who cares who's in it? I don't care if the kids are in it. I don't care what's going on. Just blow it all up. Alternately, she suggested that maybe the assassins should use a gun muffled with a pillow to execute Palmyra and her boyfriend in their sleep because, again, they did not lock the doors. When Florence expressed that people might find it suspicious that a whole family was killed, Angie responded, Palmyra's family was basically a shady family, and it wouldn't be odd that somebody may have had dealings with them to come in and kill them. Therefore, a murder would not actually look suspicious. Then she went on to explain that even though she was planning a double murder, she did have a nurturing side. If it came down to it, this is what Angie said. I would adopt their baby. That's where I'm at. That's what I'm thinking. If it came down to it where, you know, they were having a hard time finding a family member or something, a good one, I would adopt her kids. That's how much I love her kids. But I don't love her anymore. Does that make sense? Uh, no. No. Crazy how lady. How magnanimous of you that you will take in the children you orphaned with your hit. So detectives Steinwend and Holmes cracked me up because... Obviously, they could have just taken this tape recording and said, we have enough information now to charge her with soliciting a murder as well. But instead, they go to Palmyra, which they did eventually move her family into a hotel just to be safe. And they gave her all of this information. They told her exactly what Angie had been trying to plan, and they made sure that her family was safe. But before they did that, they got a makeup artist to create a fake bloodshot wound on the side of her head using makeup and pig's blood and then had her pose and play dead in her bed for fake crime scene photos. Oh, my God. This is so extra. Then they got an LAPD undercover cop to play one of the fake hitman a made-up guy named Antonio Davis. So this guy, the undercover cop, goes to the prison for a visit dressed as an attorney because that was his cover's cover that they said, your new attorney's here. And Angie, when she came out, I guess this guy must have been a little good-looking or something. You don't see him on the show, so I don't know. But she's flirting. She's trying to flirt. They have parts of this on the show and she's like, oh, I don't like look that good. It's so hard. I'm like down in the hole. There's not even a mirror there. This is so embarrassing. I hate to meet somebody like this. I'm so used to being able to fix myself up. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's not why I'm here. And she's like, well, are you an attorney? Are you my new attorney? What are you doing here? And he's like, well, we have a mutual friend, Florence. She's like, oh, yeah, okay. And then he takes the pictures, the faked 
murder shots of Palmyra and throws them on the glass between them. And to her credit, she was, she looked extremely shocked. She's just like, whoa. And she did try to pretend that she didn't know what it was. She knew exactly who the woman was clearly, but, oh, I didn't know Florence was going to go through with this. I thought she had called it off. Uh, I didn't know this was going forward. But then he starts writing down, I guess they had some pieces of paper. Clearly, if you're in prison, this is being recorded. So they have to write these things down. So they're writing these things down. And he says something like, when are my people going to get paid? And she does ultimately answer him by, I believe, writing it down, though she might have said it too. It depends on when I get my insurance money. It depends how fast I can get out of here and I can get my insurance money, which has accrued interest at this point. So they've got her now confirming that she wanted to pay money for this hit. Okay. The funniest part of this, though, is they've got her on tape, like, confirming this hit and that she wanted to pay for this hit. And then the guy's like, okay, great, cool. You're going to go home now. And she's like, yeah, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go home. And then she goes, wait. There it is. There it is. (laughs) Wait. Are you going to come back? Am I going to see you again? I mean, this is is such a funny blind date, huh? And she just found out that this man murdered her best friend and saw gruesome photos that she would later try to say traumatized her. And she's like, so when are you coming back? When am I going to see you again? What time are you picking me up? Yeah, well, the next time that she would see him, he would be wearing his LAPD uniform in court at her trial. The trial began on September 29, 2003, just after the three-year anniversary of Frank's untimely death. The prosecution argued that Angelina had married and murdered in cold blood for money. At every turn, her greed and callousness had delivered her to more depraved depths until she was recorded ordering a hit out on her former best friend and that best friend's partner, the parents of small children. Palmyra and her boyfriend testified, as did the doctors who had attended Frank at Kaiser, Frank's sisters and mother, the cunning detectives who had done such incredible work, and the medical examiner and forensic toxicologists. The defense was the old standard. This is a shitty person, but not a murderer. The evidence is only circumstantial, blah, 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 blah. And (laughs) you've heard it a million times on this show, guys. If you're new to the show... Go back to one of the first hundred episodes and I'll be more detailed, I promise. <laughs> I always point it out when they have compelling arguments. Of course. Of I course. do. This is the same standard stuff you hear all the time. The only thing that was different and did help her out was that Florence decided that she did not want to be labeled a jailhouse snitch. So even though they had a recording of her voice and her recording Angie, she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I never talked to this woman in my life. She never tried to plan a murder. Nope, that's not me. Yeah. You don't talk. She dummied up. So they totally lost her as a witness. And I believe the defense brought that up that, look, here she is. And she's saying that she didn't have this conversation. Did they need her, though? They didn't. I don't even know if they did bring her in. I'm pretty sure the defense didn't because I think that if they did bring her in, the prosecution could have brought in the recording. So I don't even know if the recording was used in the trial. I'm not entirely sure. I actually like this book a lot because it did not dwell very long on the trial, which if some of you guys are like trial heads, I apologize for this one being a little bit shorter this time, but it's actually, I think it's great because a lot of times I read these books and the trial is two thirds or half of the whole 
book and it's just a lot of back and forth. So I do not know exactly if Florence testified. I know she refused to and pretended as if this did not happen in order to not be called a snitch. Yeah. So that's about it. That's all I really think the defense had going for them. After two and a half days of deliberation, the jury found Angelina Rodriguez guilty of murder by poisoning. They also found her guilty of the special circumstance of killing to profit financially. And that would qualify Angelina for the death penalty. Mm. The same seven men and five women would be asked next to determine whether Angie's life should be spared. Judge Pounders allowed testimony during the sentencing phase from Dr. Naus, the expert who had written the letter confirming that the pacifier had been tampered with. So scary. Her psychologist, Dr. William Vackery, who had treated Angelina, spoke to her fraught and traumatic childhood and explained why she was unable to exhibit remorse for Frank's death. He said it was basically because of her trauma that she seemed emotionless and she also seemed unable to admit what she had done. But he also opened a door to some testimony that the jury had not previously heard, which is that Angelina had made her daughter serve the oleander tea and poisoned Gatorade that had killed Frank to him, thereby making her child unwittingly complicit in the murder. Whoa. The testimony concluded, and the next day they would return to hear the judge's sentencing, and that night a massive thunderstorm struck the region. Angelina later said that the weather was a sign from God, and she spent the entire evening praying and singing hymns. Aww. So the next day the judge began to deliver his ruling, and he said... There has been no indication of remorse at all during this trial. And in fact, it's hard to believe that there would be any remorse. Frank was only married for a few months when she created the circumstances under which he received $250,000 life insurance with her as the beneficiary. And two months after that, roughly attempts to kill him by the use of loosening the gas connection, which also endangered not only her husband, but also the community around her husband in the case that there had been an explosion. Yep. Then attempting to poison with Oleander and on the failure of that a week later, poisoning him for a long period of time with antifreeze. And I have to say, it's the coldest killing I've ever seen. Most of the murders and most of the murder cases in this court and over the past 20 years, and I've never seen a colder heart. She seemed to have no care for the agony that she put her husband through and the sole goal being to make a profit in his death. At that point... Angie's defense attorney stopped the judge, interrupted him, and said, actually, Your Honor, Angelina would like to make a statement in her own defense. And so he's already on his roll, but he says, okay, 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 she can't go on forever because she freaking pulls out a 113-page binder of the statement she wants to say. Excuse me? No. Yeah, he's looking to it, and he's like, I don't think so. By the way, when he was delivering his verdict this early part when he says how cold she was she was sitting there rolling her eyes like she was a teenager being scolded in class yeah no so she launches into this long-winded pathetic proclamation of her innocence comments about her victimhood about her treatment in jail about how the cops screwed this case up and it wasn't properly investigated 
he is like, okay, okay, let's get to the point. Let's get to the point. She says at one point, I am a pathetic liar. Actually, I am pathetic at lying. She said, they got one thing right. I am a pathetic liar. I'm pathetic at lying. I don't make a practice of it. I did within the four months, and that's why it's so obvious. We all make mistakes, and I've made mine. But murder isn't on that list. It's so unbelievable that she thought this would work at all. And then she tried to suggest to the judge at her sentencing that Frank had very, very deep and severe mental health issues and that he had actually killed himself by drinking the antifreeze and the oleander that he had served and prepared himself. At that point, the judge is like, okay, we're done here. You're done. Sit down. Because he said, "You're. are you suggesting that Frank killed himself? And she said, that's exactly what I'm suggesting. Oh and he God. said, oh, wow. Okay, well, we're done here now. She tried to go on to say, like, she also didn't kill her daughter, that her daughter was a survivor, that she was going to survive everything. She survived being born premature. She, that kid was a fighter. I couldn't do anything to hurt her. She's a 13-month-old baby. Yeah, shut up. Shut up. So he said, yeah, we're not going to do this anymore. And he sentenced her to death in a manner prescribed by law. Angie was shaking with rage. And apparently when they took her back to the jail to put her back in her cell, she threatened to kill two of the guards. Juror number seven spoke to the media and said, she's getting what she deserved. The only thing that would have swayed me was her defense attorney. He didn't really speak much for her. He said she was such a bad person and he didn't like her. <laughs> Angelina was awarded a new sentencing hearing in 2010, but was resentenced to death that same year. Her most recent appeal was denied by the Supreme Court of California in 2014 so she remains on death row, and she still claims she is innocent of the murders of her husband and baby girl. Wow. Delusional. Delusional, babe. In conclusion, I say ixnay the yellow Gatorade. We got to cut it out. Done. It's the worst stop. flavor anyway. <laughs> you should also probably stop creating otherworldly fictional phone calls that come into your line when they're all fuzzy and... <laughs> mystery calls because the cops can probably easily figure that out. I agree with you. To be fair, I did make up the ghostly presence. She didn't say that, but it was clear anyway. And it was a very, very easily proven lie. Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love. So no one gets murdered. We love you guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 